Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What we forget as caregivers is that the decision to come to the emergency department, to leave your day, to leave your responsibilities of the day, whether it's work or caregiving or whatever, having fun, going shopping, doing chores, is a narrative event in their life. You know, so even when patients come in and, and they say, oh, that person has nothing. No, they have something. There's something that got them out of bed in the middle of the night or got them led to leave work to come in and talk to us and tell us their story. We have to find out what that is. That's ER Dr. Jay Baruch. He's a writer as well as a physician, and his two passions have combined in his recent book, It's called Tornado of Life, a doctor's journey through constraints and creativity in the ER. In it, he tells how thinking like a writer and listening to the stories of the patients who come to the ER is at least as important as the usual battery of clinical tests. This is great. You know, the best place to start, I think, is the fascinating title of your book, Tornado of Life. What's the story behind that? Yeah, the story behind that, Alan, is is I this years and years ago, and I had a, I was caring for a young woman in the in the middle of the night, as oftentimes these stories often take place, and it was a woman with a a host of uh, layers of issues, um, from you know some substance use issues, some mental health problems, who was um, making a little bit of a ruckus at a local shelter and was brought in. And was making a little bit of a ruckus in our emergency department. And and she was kept on demanding to see a doctor, and that being me, you know, I I I I went to her room and then she sort of clammed up, you know? And hmm. and I thought that was interesting. And I was trying to find out what was what was what was that brought her here, other than the fact that you know, she got called in because there were so many different layers of problems. And when I finally got her talking, she said, you know, I'm stuck in the tornado of life. You know, there was like problems that fed onto other problems that fed onto other problems. And I felt like it was one of those situations when it was just so hard to tug at like a single string without the whole fabric unraveling, 
you know, I felt that urgency in her voice. And what struck me about that particular moment is the realization that I was listening to a chaos narrative. Hmm. What do you mean by a chaos narrative? So a lot of my, you know, I have a, as a, I'm a physician, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm, I also teach medical humanities and health humanities and bioethics. And there was a book by uh, the sociologist Arthur Frank called The Wounded Storyteller, which was really blew my mind when I read it. And, he, and in it, one of the things, of the many things that he writes so eloquently about is this idea about these like, three prevailing narratives or frames that, that operate in medicine, whether we realize it or not. And they're not separate categories. They, they can bleed into each other. And, um, and they're a restitution narrative. There's the um, quest narrative. And there's the chaos narrative. And so very briefly, the, the restitution narrative is our cold commercial on TV. You know, you're well, and you got the sniffles, or you got sick, or you got the stomach ache, whatever. You take the purple pill, or the green pill, or the yellow pill, and you get better. And the next scene is, you know, super saturated sunlight, you're throwing the frisbee tea dog in the park. You were well. <laughs> you're well. You were sick. You took something. Now you're back to the land of the well. The quest narrative borrows from the work of Joseph Campbell as sort of illness is a journey. And Arthur Frank uh, writes so eloquently about his experience as a cancer survivor. And in, and in the quest narrative, you're, you're well, and then you're not well. And then you're thrust into this kingdom of the not well. And you're, you're tested and you face trials and, and tribulations. And if, you, and if you're lucky and if you're fortunate, you have the opportunity to come back to the land of the well, but you are changed as a result of your experience. And sometimes the experience is so tough to put into words, it's even difficult to describe to the people who are closest to you, who love you, who... Mm. And then there's the chaos narrative. <laughs> yeah. And so the chaos narrative is that narrative, which is like, we sort of know it without knowing it. It's like, and this happened, and this happened, and then, and then, and then. Things just get worse and worse and more complicated. Right. If narrative is, our, is a way to sort of put order into chaotic experiences, chaos narratives defy that ordering, right? And all the times it's hard to put into words. And what's challenging and what's about chaos narratives is, especially in medicine, is that sometimes we, tr we listen to a chaos narrative, we hear a chaos narrative, and we try to turn it into something else. You know, we try to provide an easy answer. We try to provide a solution when there isn't no easy answer, isn't an easy solution. And what happens is by dishonoring the story that the patient is telling us, we're actually, dis we're actually dishonoring the storyteller. You know, because what we need to do is just sit there and listen and honor their experiences, which is what I, you know, which is what I did, I tried to do. What's so interesting to me is that you're, you, tell me if I'm right about this. As you approach your work, I get the impression you're not collecting a bunch of symptoms. You're looking for a story from the patient that makes the symptoms have a three-dimensionality to them that connects them to what's really going on. If you're just listening for a few symptoms that can put you in, put the patient in a certain box, mm. you may be missing a deeper problem 
You may even be missing other symptoms that don't come to mind to the patient. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a quote from the actor, Anna DeVere Smith, that I have in my book that I just love. And she says something to the effect of, you can learn... You can learn so much about a person in the moment that language fails them. I love that about her. I love that insight she has. When syntax breaks down, the real person is coming out. I guess the conflicts the person is undergoing and that kind of thing. I love it, right? And so for a physician, like if you're there trying to find an answer, if you're trying to find, use symptoms as like the stem of a question and you're there to come up with the answer, this can be frustrating, Right. However, if you're approaching this and saying, God, you know what? What is this person not saying? This is an interesting word choice that they use. Um, God, they paused when I asked that question. Uh, why was that pause? The rhythm, the rhythm of the conversation changed. Um, then that is a place for examination, right? And and ultimately, you know, you can end up saving not saving yourself time by you know, tests that you don't necessarily need to do, for example, um, by just making certain that you're getting at what the patient is really trying to tell you, which can be embarrassing and vulnerable and, and fearful and fraught with anxiety. And, we, and we, sometimes we forget that um, in medicine. Or the patient sometimes, I get the impression, just can't tell you. Like the, the story of Jill, which is such a telling story. Yeah, I. <laughs> this was from early in my medical career. I was, as a, I was an attending. I finished my residency, and and you know I was considered myself very well trained. You know, and I had this woman with coming to an inner city hospital ER in the middle of the night, looking all decked out, looking great. Um, looked very different than many of the people I was. <laughs> I was caring for that night, and she didn't mind. And she had these bunch of vague symptoms, and there was nothing vague about her. And and one of and a couple of things that came out was chest pain and shortness of breath. And so that I was confused about what was going on with her. I kept on going back, and so I pursued that. I pursued a workup through the night, and she didn't seem to mind. And she didn't seem to mind spending the whole night, night in the hospital. And and next to like. You know, people who, I, you know, she's wearing a wedding ring. I assume she'd probably be much happier spending the night in, with her partner or husband, wife, whoever, you know, than spending on a, in a ER stretcher in the middle of the night surrounding a bunch of, a bunch of people who didn't smell as well as she did and were, yeah. had drank, you know, drank a lot and were very loud and sometimes charming and sometimes not. However, the morning came. I apologized for the fact that I couldn't find the reason for her symptoms and asked if there's anybody we can call to pick her up. And she said no. And then we started talking. I thought that was interesting. And ultimately, I realized she told me that the reason why she came was because she was you know, a victim of interpersonal violence for many years. And that night, she finally, finally had enough and, and didn't know where else to turn. And I was so busy trying to figure out what, what's going on, what's wrong with her, that I never interrogated why. 
You know, I was conscientious and diligent and entirely devoid of any imagination. And mm. and I wasn't paying attention to subtext. You know, I wasn't paying attention to what was between the lines. I wasn't interrogating my own feeling, the fact that, God, something did not feel right. And I was so busy on trying to find the answer, I, again, I did not bother to wonder whether I was asking the right questions. One of the things that interests me in the stories you write, and you write beautifully vivid stories of experiences in the ER, and the doctor in the story is not always heroic in these pieces, sometimes has human flaws, even your own. That's an element that seems to me to be really important because the the wise man in the white coat has been an image that patients have had of doctors and doctors have had of themselves. But you're presenting an idea that the doctor is human and can benefit from being exploratory and creative to really listen. And you've said this really interesting thing, that doctors would benefit from being more not knowing. Yeah. In a particular way, it's not. It's good. To, it's 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 a plus to have medical knowledge, but to go into the the mystery of what's really going on needs not to jump to conclusions too fast. Right. We take solace in like big data and research trials, and that's so important and so critical for for the advances that we have. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right tool all the time for every situation that that I, I'm greeted with um, in, in the ER. So each patient is really uncharted territory. Even if two people come in having a heart attack, there are two different experiences that are coming into this path. That this, this, even if the pathology that's causing the problem is, this, is similar, the, the experience and my approach to it might be very different. You remind me of how many writers say, I write to find out what I'm thinking. Yeah. There's something that you can discover that's in the back of your head that you're not getting out any other way. And that is, in a way, the, the creative process. And if you apply that, I'm guessing you're saying if you can apply that to your relationship with the patient, you, stuff can come to the surface that wouldn't come any other way. And it's so satisfying. I mean, when you're trying to make an experience fit, when it doesn't do that, like some things happen, like some things are great. You know, I had, I had the funniest story a couple of years ago. I had a, a, a woman who was, you know, had all the risk factors for a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot that goes to the lung. And my resident, who was absolutely superb, had this smile on her face, and she goes, that was so satisfying. I'm like, that was pretty straightforward. And she goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the patient, she had the risk factors for the pulmonary embolism. We did a, you know, the bedside ultrasound. We saw some changes in the heart that might be consistent with the a pulmonary embolism, her vital signs, her story sounded consistent with the pulmonary embolism. We did a CAT scan. She had a pulmonary embolism. She had a pulmonary embolism. Things don't... <laughs> but, <laughs> it, might, but, it might be right there in front of you. But it, stuck out, but it stood out because 
that's not the way it is. You know, finding out the questions and have, have, the things aren't straightforward. They don't. If they are, it's the rarity. You know, I, someone once said that. You know, classic presentations of disease means it happens a third of the time. Um, uh, yeah. And um, and the dangers are that if we try to make it fit, um, we're doing a disservice to the patient and to ourselves, and we miss out on the opportunity to address what the real concerns are. And those types of conversations, Alan, are sometimes the most rewarding, you know, for the patient and for the doctor, because the patient realizes that even if I don't understand exactly what they're going through, I'm trying to. All of this requires a deeper kind of listening, not just hearing what's being said and then going on to the next moment. How would you describe listening more deeply? I think you had said something to the effect of, you know, to to listen is to have a willingness to have your mind change or something to that I effect. Did, actually, I actually, yeah, it was, I think what I said in, a, in a, a book I wrote that I discovered or felt I had discovered that I wasn't really listening unless I was willing to be changed right. by the other person. I love that idea of because it's not just hearing, right? It's what you're bringing to the conversation is an openness. So being open to everything or being open for specific things to have a radar to like, huh, that's the interesting turn of phrase. That's an interesting, that's, that's unexpected. Or I feel this person is closing off and there's more there. I got to go back. I'm going to give them a little mm-hmm. bit of time. I'm going to go back. This is where the writing practice comes in, Alan, because oftentimes when I'm disorganized in my own writing, I try to force it. <laughs> I try to make it work, right? <laughs> yeah, I know that <laughs> I'm going to make it work. And, yeah. and sometimes what you need to do is you need to actually take a step backward and wonder and ask yourself, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here to this moment? And so often I, I bring that into the care uh, and the conversations I have with patients often. You know, if they ask, if they're all over the place with their conversations or with their list of things, I'll say, hey, tell me what happened today. Walk me through your day today mm. and, and tell me what happened up to the moment that you decided to come in to the emergency department because what we forget as caregivers is that the decision to come to the emergency department to leave your day, to leave your responsibilities of the day, whether it's work or caregiving or whatever, having fun, going shopping, doing chores, is a narrative event in their life. You know, so even when patients come in and and say, oh, that person has nothing. No, they have something. <laughs> There's something that got them out of bed in the middle of the night or got them led to leave work to come in and talk to us and tell us their story. We have to find out what that is. When we come back from our break, Jay Baruch tells me how he and his colleagues in the ER responded to the COVID pandemic and the challenge of being empathic with patients who had refused to get vaccinated. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid. 
which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with ER Dr. Jay Baruch. So as we talk, I'm thinking it must have been a big challenge for you to really listen and not get upset and militant when somebody tells you during the past two years, no, I'm not getting a vaccination. That was complicated, Alan, for several reasons. The biggest problem was it just was polarizing at the outset from both sides. And what I discovered is that Whatever I was feeling when I ended up talking to patients, oftentimes they weren't being political about it. You know, they didn't, there were a lot of different reasons why they weren't getting vaccinated due to lack of trust, not having a doctor that they can talk to, reading conflicting opinions in the, in, on, <laughs> in Google. Um, and, and I wrote a piece on it, on that. And, um, and how we need to understand each other better and try to meet in the messy middle, as I called it. You know, the messy middle. I, I live firmly in the messy middle. And the, the emails that were shared with me after a piece I wrote, they spoke so beautifully and eloquently about their reasons for not getting vaccinated enough that I still think that everyone should get vaccinated. Don't get me wrong. But I have a little bit of a measure of forgiveness, and I try to understand the fact that people, what motivates people can be very, very different from what we'd like to, we'd like to imagine them to be. And I think in that article that you wrote, that, that essay, I think you mentioned your disappointment that, it had, that the vaccine had been touted to have been developed at warp speed. Yeah. <laughs> 
which had the unintended consequence, I guess, for many people to think, well, this was rushed through and they didn't do it scientifically, and I'll wait till there's more experience with this, <laughs> when in fact they just poured more resources and time into it and did the same thing that they always do. Yeah, it should be quick and diligent speed, like Operation Quick and Diligent. <laughs> yeah. But that shows respect for the other person. We, we've reached this point now, unfortunately, and, and it's not brand new. We, we've had it for decades in milder forms, I think, where we hear one word from the other person and therefore, we think we know everything they think about everything. Right. And we, and we get the pleasure then of yelling at the enemy. When in fact, if we tried to be in the messy middle, as you call it, with this other person, yeah. then that's where the conversation can go to, you may be right, tell me more about that. But it's so important because when we find out, when we actually have these conversations, and they're not easy, and it takes a measure of courage and vulnerability, right? Because to to do that, to to open yourself up in that way, you know, I can be hard. You know, it can be very, very hard, especially when, let's say, you you hold an opinion that is contrary to to what the other person or a group of people think. To be able to try to express that in a way to make yourself understood, not to sort of fight back, but actually try to express what's deeply important to you, is hard and. You know, I don't know how you feel about this, Alan, but you know, my from my own perspective as a in the ER on the front lines during the pandemic, you know, I, I've been stunned and amazed by all the things and all the people that came together to respond as well as we did. Um, however, I think the one area where we could have done better is um, we we were able to address the pandemic as an infectious disease crisis, as an economic crisis, as a health equity crisis to various degrees. But we failed to address it as a narrative crisis, um, mm. and now I think we're we're trying to catch up on that. Um, but it's but it's really important, especially if if we hope to get out of this. I think the only way we can do this is together, and I think we can do it. I think there's more people in the messy middle than we realize. Do you think that the problem we've had during this pandemic? of resilience, not not having enough resilience because the workload has been so monumental and unrelenting and the problems of burnout. Do you think there's any positive effect of making this connection and listening for a story that can come to uh, the problem of burnout? Does it, does it make it less a, a serious problem? Does it remedy it a little bit? Or does it make it worse? Because the more, sometimes the more empathy you show another person, the more you suffer with their suffering. And if you put one suffering on top of another, if you don't have a way to get out of the empathic relationship, even temporarily, you're liable to sink. Yeah. Man, I... I, I, I wish I wish we had an hour just to talk about this question. It's a really important question, and it's one that we're many of us, many many of us are 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 not just thinking about, but grappling with ourselves. And I think the frustration that I'm seeing in and colleagues and in myself is the fact that the conversations around burnout are are really taking something that's very complex and trying to make it simple. And this is you know take time off and 
go exercise and do yoga and, and all important things and mindfulness, do all critically important things. But many of many of us are are feel although feeling the burden of it for many, many different reasons that there isn't an easy answer for because the system is somewhat complicated. And at the at the root of it, I, I think is at least for me and my colleagues in the emergency department, you know, which it's trying to uphold like this moral mission in a in a climate that you know is is heavily informed by you know political and and um, and business pressures, and that only got worse during the pandemic. And the value of stories. Getting back to your original question, Alan, is I, I think now more than ever it's so important because people are bringing in so many different types of experiences as a result of the pandemic. Um, from health, from healthcare providers of all types, from from the you know the unit clerks to techs to people working in the cafeteria to to doctors, everyone has had it has brings their experiences through this, and patients, you know, and their patient and their stories, if anything, have gotten more complicated as accessing healthcare, health getting access to their doctors, getting a doctor, navigating lack of health insurance, having dealing with problems that were ignored or were addressed um, incompletely because of the challenges of the pandemic. The stories have gotten so complicated and complex. And I, I th- and they come, they come to the ER telling them, you know, we have more mental health problems, more substance use problems. Um, and so if anything, the value of stories and our ability to honor them and respect them and respond to them in a meaningful way has only increased in the three years. What about you? I think you've had a, one or two times when you've you felt burnt out. What was that like, and how did it how did it get better? Oh, I try to find ways to burn back in um, because I, I think that's we, that's part of the conversation that's oftentimes not addressed. Like you know, we all, we'll burn out, but you can find ways to burn back in. And part of that is is getting your is sometimes it is it is getting back to those other thing which is rest and sleep and mindfulness and exercise but it's really about trying to tap back into those things that give you meaning. I'm grappling to try to uphold the 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 duties and the obligations and and my own sense of of presence in the emergency department. You know, I, I, I came into emergency medicine for a reason. Like there was a definite social justice meeting, mission. And I like to bring a certain sense of humor to it and a certain interest to it and and hopefully a certain compassion and irreverence. Um but it's complicated and, and so I I, I don't I, I'm not going to I want to be able to give you an easy answer for this, Alan, but I but I respect you and I respect your listeners way too much. You know, it would help if the system was better, but the system is facing challenges, financial challenges, workforce challenges, and people are getting sicker um, as well. So their needs, are, if anything, are increased. But we are, we are in a special place. You know, we, caring for others and, and hearing the, how people are struggling to try to make it through a day, you know, how people are trying to make it through a day is a privilege and an honor to, to be 
to be a receiver of those stories and hopefully have an opportunity and have a chance to impact them and make and make their tomorrow a little bit easier at the very least just by by honoring and dignifying them in their story. You know, we began with the story of the young woman who had a tornado of life. How did that story end? Well, what we were able to achieve in that moment was a conversation. I was able to get her talking, which was great. And and she was the driver of that conversation. So what's interesting, Alan, is that the medical parts of her story were overwhelming but doable. You know, so... She had substance use issues, and unfortunately, in our, um, you know, we were able to refer her and get her help for her substance use. She had a suicidal gesture, and we were able to get her help for that. And the psychiatrist saw her, and she had some medical issues that we were able to address. But I think was most interesting when writing about it was really putting into play what it means to honor a chaos narratives. And I straddled this line between trying to give her solutions for those things that we could solve or could help her with, while also honoring the fact that there are aspects of her life that, that I don't have any control over that I can't touch. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I want, I don't want to give the impression that I'm throwing up my hands either in like, you know, in defeat. So ultimately, you know, <laughs> and readers and your listeners might be disappointed, was this understanding that every tomorrow is an achievement mm. and realizing that's how important that is. Um, and so like all, like many, many ER stories and like most of the stories in life, they're untidy they don't necessarily have neat endings, but like I write in the book, you know, every ending is really a new beginning. <laughs> you remind me of Michael J. Fox when I talked with him about his Parkinson's. He said, huh. if it takes me five minutes to put my shoe on, I don't say it took me five minutes to put my shoe on. I say, I got my shoe on. <laughs> I wish we had time to talk more. Same but here. We, we, we're at the end of our time, but we always end with seven quick questions. Uh-oh. They're uh, generally in a rough way about communication. Let's do it. What do you wish you really understood? Uh, <laughs> what I wish I really understood is how humor works. Oh, good. That's interesting. I've wondered that myself. Okay, next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That's interesting. What I was thinking is... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I think one of the most common and, and maybe un, unexpected questions I'll, I'll often get is uh, when people sort of you know, say, can you look at this mole? Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? It depends. Um, I would say that 
depends what the compulsive talker is talking about. Um, if uh, if I find myself becoming in impatient, I'll say what I was thinking is, or you know, let's let's that's a, that's what that's really fascinating, and then you sort of stop it and and veer into a different direction. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? So I think this is the part where we're supposed to have a genuine conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds creative enough to create a conversation, I think. And leading into the discomfort, right? Because everyone's thinking of the same thing, right? You're yeah. trying to, yeah. Yeah, that's great. What gives you confidence? That's been my lifelong pursuit. You know, I guess the love of my family. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? The novels of Jules Verne mm. made me love literature at a very, very, very young age. And there was a bookstore in Huntington, New York. I grew up in Comac, Long Island. And uh, it was a bookstore called Oscars, one of these old bookstores that no longer exists anymore. And Oscar would save these old versions of um, Signet editions of Jules Verne's books for me because they were much, they were like a quart, couple of quarter, like a dollar or a dollar, you know. And I would bring my allowance in there and, and my mother would be like a separate trip and we'd go there. It was like a big trip, you know. And the idea of literature as something special that you share with someone, the fact that he would go down into the basement or his back room and bring back bring out these, whatever book he was able to give for me, um, created a real, a real love and fascination and respect for the power of stories and the compassion and the, the sensitivity of a bookstore owner. And what I love about that is that that youthful experience not only made you a writer, it made you a better doctor. I hope so. This is great. Thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really enjoyed it. This has been an honor. Thank you so much, Alan. This has been a thrill. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Jay Baruch is professor of emergency medicine at Albert Medical School of Brown University. He's also the author of two award-winning short fiction collections. His new book is Tornado of Life, a Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. His website is jbaruch.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. 
You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with climate scientist Kate Marvel. As we talked, Hurricane Ian was battering Florida, and Kate was the perfect person to help me understand how much of the recent extreme weather, heat waves, drought, floods, even hurricanes, is the result of climate change. We know a lot about the physics of climate change. We know a lot about the underlying factors that are changing the climate, not just the temperature, but the rainfall, the drought risk, the storm risk. Um, So we understand a lot of that stuff better than we did several years ago. But the other reason it's getting easier to attribute extreme events to climate change is that the events are becoming more extreme. You don't have to disentangle the role of natural internal climate variability if there is no way that natural variability could have produced that record-shattering event. Kate Marvel, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.